Hi, this is Professor Peter Nash from the Department of Medicine and Rheumatology, University of Queensland. Welcome, Dr. Grenningland. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. So uh, every month we try to interview someone who's put together a very interesting paper. We're all very interested in the BTK inhibitors. We've had a little bit of experience with them. We've done a clinical trial in lupus that uh, didn't get up in uh, humans. So we're very interested in your particular BTK inhibitor. Can you just tell the audience a little bit about BTK, what you're actually blocking, and then this thing that I'm having trouble with, the reversibility, the covalency, which should it be preferably? Should it be irreversible or reversible? Over to you. Okay, um, I'll start, Peter. I'll start with just giving some background on the on on BTK itself and uh, which path pathways it's involved in. So um, BTK is, as you said, short for Bruton's tyrosine kinase, and it was discovered um, by by an American physician who found um, patients that lacked B cells and immunoglobulins, and they showed some recurrent infections. And then later, it was found that BTK was the, or mutations in BTK were the reasons for this. And so there are various mutations, uh, which could be truncated protein or inability of BTK to locate to the, um, close to the uh, cell membrane. And BTK is um, a signaling molecule for various surface receptors. Um, so in B cells, it's, uh, it's important for B cell receptor signaling. In myeloid cells, it's important for uh, FC receptor signaling. Um, and uh, within the immune system, you can find it in B cells and myeloid cells. It's not expressed in uh, T cells or in K cells, for example. Um, there are also some data showing that DK may be downstream of toll-like receptor signaling, but that seems to be a scaffolding function. So that is something that you can observe in genetic knockouts, but not by pharmacological inhibition. Uh, so with pharmacological inhibition, you will get the B cell receptor signaling and FC receptor signaling. Um, so why is BTK interesting? Uh, so both in RA and SLE, cells drive the pathology by producing antibodies, and these autoantibodies can form immune complexes, and that in turn can activate myeloid cells, and then they can uh, cause tissue damage. Um, the B cells are also able to process and present antigen that can sample using the BSA receptor, and they present that to T cells, thus activating them. So BTK plays uh, an important role in several pathways that are important um, in B cell-driven autoimmune diseases. So as with regards to a little bit of the background of the molecule, ivobrutinib itself, um, so um, you mentioned earlier that, that um, so I'm calling him from the EMD Serono Research and Development Institute, and we are a subsidiary of, of Merck KGAA in Darmstadt, Germany. And um, the molecule was, was discovered here. It's a covalent inhibitor of BTK, and um, that means that it binds to a cysteine that's present in the ATP binding pocket of BTK. And this bond is irreversible. So ivibrutinib will stay on BTK um, as long as the protein is around. So in order to regain function, the B cells and the myeloid cells have to resynthesize new BTK protein. Uh, in addition, the cysteine is also um, present in only about 10 other kinases within the kinome of over 400 kinases. And ivibrutinib absolutely requires this covalent binding 
otherwise it won't inhibit. And um, we think that this feature um, aids greatly in achieving the selectivity over other kinases that ivobrutinib offers. Um, and in vitro, uh, what we've shown and what's also shown in this paper is that ivobrutinib inhibits activation and function of B cells via the IFC receptor. These cells will not proliferate, uh, they will not produce cytokines, they will not differentiate into plasma cells. Um, in myeloid cells, ivobrutinib prevents activation of macrophages via the FC gamma receptor. Um, and I mentioned earlier that FC receptors are, are expressed in pretty much all myeloid cells, so we have also looked at basophils, where ivobrutinib inhibits activation via the FC epsilon receptor. Um, coming back to your question whether covalent or reversible inhibitors are better, um, I think that is really difficult to answer um, because essentially that would require actually comparing them side by side in a clinical trial in humans, um, which, is, uh, which is not happening right now. Uh, what I would say is they're, they're different in the way they act. So a covalent inhibitor like ivobrutinib or others um, will essentially, uh, as I said, stay on, the, stay on BTK and inhibit it for the entire time, whereas a reversible inhibitor um, will, uh, you know, bind to BTK, come off again, bind again. So it has different requirements in terms of um, the exposure. So for a reversible molecule, you need to make sure that you have high exposure all the time so that you can provide appropriate coverage. Uh, whereas for a covalent uh, BTK inhibitor, you can afford having a very short-lived exposure because the molecule will bind uh, to BTK and stay there. These are sort of these are the two main differences. Okay, so we're used to blocking B cells for long periods of time with rituximab and the CD20 monoclonals. So we're talking about an oral small molecule, hey? So we're talking about something that may replace those CD20 monoclonal antibodies if it works out because the target's very similar and we know it's got efficacy in lupus, in lymphoma, et cetera. Um, yes, so there's some, some similarities um, in that, that uh, BTK inhibitors and also ivobrutinib target B cells. The difference is though that the B cell targeting therapies, the biologics that are available, um, they uh, deplete B cells. And um, a BTK inhibitor, um, as at least as what we have, what we know so far, and what we show in this paper, and this uh, point out, this is purely preclinical data. So after chronic treatment up to two months in the lupus model, we did not observe any B cell depletion. Um, we did observe a normalization of B cell subsets and also T cell subsets to what you would find in healthy mice, uh, but no depletion, and and that was somewhat surprising because based on the knockout data, both in animals, but also in, in human BTK mutants, uh, one might have expected B cell depletion, but with pharmacological inhibition, that's not uh, what we observed. And obviously that is something um, that um, of, we are also following during the clinical trials to, to see uh, what is actually happening in patients. Um, but we do not have these, uh, these data public yet. So that's a critical, important difference. Thank you very much. The reason why I even asked about covalency and the reversibility, because at ULA, just gone in Madrid, they published two different inhibitors, fenobrutinib, which was reversible and non-covalent and seemed to have good efficacy in RA, and post-cell 
which was covalent irreversible that didn't work even though they had a very high placebo rate so i couldn't get my head around why one would be effective as the reversible non-covalent btk inhibitor and the other wouldn't that was covalent and irreversible so i'm not sure which way to go with the recommendation of which btk action to go for yeah, that's a that is a very good question, and uh, we looked at those um, uh, well these reports as well, and and I think it's it's um, really hard to answer the question why one molecule works the reversible in this case and why the uh, covalent molecule failed without knowing um, all the details. So, for example, let's start with the with the um, covalent molecule, um, which did not reach its primary endpoint. So we do not know. What the exposure was, uh, we do not know what the uh, what the occupancy of BTK was. So I think uh, for me it's not possible to uh, sort of conclude that the reversible molecule um, or the, the general reversible approach is uh, in some ways better than the covalent one because we simply don't have the details um, on on why that particular molecule did not work. Okay, so let's come back to your particular study. Can you tell us a little bit about the objectives of what you did and a little bit about the models for the uh, clinician who doesn't understand a lot about these things? Um, yeah, gladly. So just the, the um, well, the objectives of the study were essentially that um, we wanted to, we wanted to uh, characterize the uh, um, well, the molecule in vitro. So we were looking at uh, basic things like uh, kinase selectivity, uh, activity in, in cells, uh, in the B cells and the myeloid cells. Um, then um, to looking at effects of this prolonged BTK um, occupancy. So we wanted to see um, uh, in vivo, in, in animal models, whether we can disconnect the exposure from the inhibition of BTK. Then uh, we went on to show or to look for efficacy in um, preclinical models for rheumatoid arthritis and also for uh, lupus. And then the last and very important piece is uh, that we wanted to model a relation between BTK inhibition as measured by occupancy and the degree of um, disease inhibition that we could observe. And in terms of the models, um, if I just want to, I'm just going to go into detail mostly on the on the in vivo models. So we started with some quite simple pharmacodynamic animal models um, just to show that ibuprofen inhibits its target cells. So we looked at um, B cells and and mast cells. Um, so if I just focus on the B cells, for example, we would those animals uh, with a single dose of ibuprofen then draw blood at various time points measure the exposure, and then also the ability of the B cells in the whole blood to be activated. Um, and then what we showed is that um, we could, um, uh, at early time points, as you would expect, you have some high exposure, you have a certain degree of inhibition, but at later time points, when ibuprofenib was no longer detectable, we still saw significant inhibition, and that is the result of this covalent binding. And we did very similar experiments um, looking at, at mast cell readouts. Um, and then from there, we moved to uh, the complex disease models. And uh, we very much like here the, uh, the, the NZBWF1 model uh, for, to model some aspects of, uh, of uh, SLE. So these animals will spontaneously develop proteinuria as they age. Uh, unfortunately, that typically takes about a year. So what we uh, did is we infected the animals 
with a replication-deficient adenovirus, and this virus expresses interferon alpha, which, as you know, is a key driver in SLE. And so the interferon alpha production is very short-lived. So two weeks after the infection, there's no interferon detectable, but it's just sufficient to jumpstart the disease. And um, so essentially that allows us to run the study in two months rather than having to wait an entire year. So we looked in, these, in this model, uh, we did obviously uh, thorough analysis of proteinuria, uh, but we also looked at uh, immune cell subsets. So we found that ibrutinib was um, completely blocking proteinuria development in this mouse, but we also found general normalization of T cell activation of B cell subsets, uh, reduced plasma cell numbers, uh, also levels that, that normally find in a healthy animal. Essentially, this model told us that there was a correlation between um, certain immune cell subsets and disease activity. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we did not find any evidence for, for B cell depletion. Um, and did you, are we able to show any changes in some of the antibody levels, ANA, double-stranded DNA, those kinds of things? So we looked, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a very good question. We looked at um, anti-double-stranded DNA and uh, what we saw is that, so typically over the course of this experiment, which takes about two months, uh, these levels continuously rise. And uh, that was uh, this increase in anti-DSDNA levels was reduced in the presence of ivobrutinib, but the levels did not uh, disappear or that they did not go, low, go below the baseline levels. Um, we have another piece of data from the arthritis model, which is collagen-induced arthritis, so it involves two immunizations, and the treatment started just uh, the day before the second immunization, and there we looked at anti-collagen antibodies, and those levels were not uh, changed at all. Uh, yet in both models, we find complete um, inhibition of disease readouts like proteinuria or, or uh, pore scoring or histology. So um, that tells us that it's really um, the effect on, on myeloid cells that's also important uh, for the action of ivobrutinib and other BTK inhibitors. And in the any rheumatoid studies to show reduction in rheumatoid factor, ACPA, those kinds of uh, pathogens? Anybody's? Uh, no, so this is this is collagen-induced arthritis model. So we do not look at, or we did not look at those markers. What we looked at is uh, collagen antibodies, um, yeah. and there, there was no change. There was no change there. The the um, we will be looking in the clinical studies more at at the relevant data, but these are not uh, these are not finished yet. Okay, that that's fair enough. So it's it's a fascinating area of future study. Where do you think you're going to go your, um, anti with your molecule? Where, where's the next uh, clinical trials, human clinical trials that you're going to attempt? Well, right now, ivibrutinib is, uh, is, is um, being tested in two phase two clinical trials. So one in RA and one in SLE, which are, which are ongoing. Um, and it uh, will be tested in a phase three uh, trial in multiple sclerosis. Um, and that trial was just uh, posted recently. So these are the most immediate uh, high-impact studies. Do you think you'll have a Do you think you'll have a lymphoma drug? Ooh, that is a um, that is a strategic question. So we're we're really focusing on autoimmune diseases uh, with this molecule, and um, basically cancer indications um, are are not uh, on the table at this point.
They're not on the horizon. Fair enough. So the clinician's a bit worried that here you are blocking innate immunity, blocking B cell repertoire. Um, Bruton found X-linked gamma globulinemia caused infection. Are you going to see infection? Any hint of the safety side rather than the efficacy side? Right. So, um, so I just want to point out that uh, it's it's a big difference whether you look at uh, a genetic deletion or genetic function of BTK uh, versus pharmacologic inhibition. So, um, for example, the the B cell deficiency that you observe with the BTK knockout is not really something that we've seen with pharmacological inhibition or the uh, the, the defect in TLR signaling, uh, which you find in knockouts, is not something that you see with pharmacologic BTK inhibition. So I think um, so I think it's uh, you know it's not necessarily or the findings from knockouts will not necessarily translate into uh, what's going to happen in patients. Obviously, during the clinical trials, you know there, there's going to be or there is uh, monitoring of, of safety aspects, but I cannot really talk about the safety features of these molecules. I would uh, I would happily refer you to one of our clinicians for that. Fair enough. It's a bit early to know. Yeah. I, I also noted that three milligrams a kilo seem to block more than 80% of your BTK occupancy. Is that a kind of dose that's going to be, re, you know, able to be got into humans? So the the actual dose in preclinical models um, is, um, is typically, is for any inhibitor, um, quite different from what's used in humans, simply because um, the metabolism of the molecules is typically faster or a lot faster in small rodents. So what we're looking for is um, the exposure and the degree of BTK occupancy. So what we've seen in preclinical models is that uh, as long as we, or if we had a an average BTK occupancy of about 80%, which was in the mouse achieved with a dose between one and three milligram per kilogram, that, that translated in the preclinical model into um, into full disease inhibition. So what when, uh, what we're doing in humans is obviously we, we we're looking at the BTK occupancy, and that is really the pharmacodynamic driver to be able to assess um, whether or not BTK is really a good uh, target in in RA and SLE patients, because we will be able to look at uh, the degree of target inhibition and then look at the clinical outcomes. And then uh, once the data are in, you know, we, we will know more. The future for the clinician, what's the takeaway message from your study? So from, from uh, our study, which was, again, was purely preclinical, I think that the takeaway message is that um, uh, clinicians should look out, I think, for BTK inhibitors because they have a dual mechanism of action. They can inhibit the B cells without depleting them, and they can inhibit the myeloid cells, um, which is something that's that's um, different from from uh, approaches like targeting uh, B cells by depleting them. Whether or not that turns out to be better or or not as good as existing approaches, again, that's um, you're going to be something that that uh, would have to be determined in clinical trials. But I think the the exciting part is really the um, the dual action on B cells and myeloid cells, and also the bit about um, the modeling that you can get with a covalent uh, inhibitor because you can directly measure 
how much of your target is is able to function and uh, that is a great means to to correlate that with any readouts uh, be it in preclinical models or also in in uh, humans excellent so thank you again for your time uh, dr Rowland. that's really been greatly appreciated this is Bonacon signaling forum july author podcast if you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can find detailed slide sets are available in the publication section. Just go to cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media and visit the CSF website for more details. Thank you all very much.